Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. This week, we're going to be talking about science in the news that caught our eye. And joining me is... Adam Bristol. So, you know, big news this week... Yeah, the Perseverance rover landed successfully on Mars, which is stunningly amazing when you take a step back and think about it. And that those pictures came back right away. Yep, we it watched amazing. it live on, on the internet, and it was really suspenseful. You know, you see all of these uh, NASA engineers uh, seemingly chomping their gum. Uh, underneath their masks uh, in those last few minutes uh, before touchdown. But then there's also a kind of banality about it that always surprises me. <laughs> banality? In, like, in what way? Well, there's just, you know, it's like people are in this room and, you know, they're kind of waiting for some for, for this thing to happen. And I don't know, it just kind of feels like for such a momentous thing to be, it just feels weird to be sitting in front of a computer while you're potentially watching the fruit of your labors of many years go by. You know, it's not like they're anywhere near the rover, obviously. Of course, but they're professionals. <laughs> and they know. each one, I am certain, has a job to do. And there is a, you know, there's a professionalism. There's a probably a precision that goes into the work they're doing. I was actually quite impressed by a lot of the engineers where they kind of have like a hot mic on them, uh, for lack of a better term, and you get to hear what they're saying. And, you know, of course, they explode in a celebration once the, the rover starts beeping that we're live and we're down and everything is safe. And that's just, it's just incredible, right? I mean, to be able to do that and know exactly where it's going many millions of miles away, it's just really extraordinary. So what else caught your eye? So I'm fascinated by this field of paleogenetics, mm. the ability to extract and analyze DNA samples from ancient artifacts. Like Hope Jarn's work. Hope Jarn's work. There's a number of labs uh, around the world that have been mm -hmm. doing this. It just is astonishing that improvements in DNA sequencing and bioinformatics allow us to take what are frankly, quite degraded samples, cobble them back together 
into a readable and, and meaningful genetic sequence. Mm -hmm. So I find that to be fascinating. There's a parallel field of proteomics, which is being used in archaeology, of course, where you can take ancient artifacts, scrape off a little of the corner, and you can see what Michelangelo was eating. This is relevant because proteins tend to be more robust in kind of nature mm -hmm. as these, uh, these artifacts sit around kind of after death. Mm -hmm. And the, there had never been, up until this week, the ability to extract and sequence and analyze DNA older than one million years. Mm -hmm. And so, incidentally, this year, this, this week, in fact, they reported for the first time the analysis of ancient DNA of over one million years. Mm -hmm. It came from a number of uh, uh, mammoth molars that were discovered in the permafrost uh, of Russia. And, you know, the, the, the real findings, of course, were this was a whole new species of mammoth, and there's a lot of other interesting elements to it. But simply the fact that you can do that, mm -hmm. you know, has now broken yet another boundary. And the theoretical limit is 2.6 million years, kind of where, the, where permafrost tends to go away, and it's just simply too warm earlier than that. But this was a bit of a milestone event for ancient DNA. So that was the first thing that caught my eye. Hmm. Oh, now, the cool. second thing that caught my eye okay. is a paper that was in Science also this week, again, around the topic of ancient DNA. It is one thing to simply read off the sequence and learn about what the ancient genetic genotype was. That's that's mm -hmm. one thing. That's I mean, interesting. That it's reading. Hard, it. It's yeah, okay. hard and interesting. And you learn about it because you can compare it to the modern descendants mm -hmm. of some of those species. How about the ability through genetic editing to take what you know to be an ancient sequence and then knock it into a modern cell? Okay. So, okay. Okay. So this is like taking an elephant cell and making it a woolly mammoth cell. A little bit, a little bit. But what this group was doing was saying they had an interesting approach. They basically said, if you compare the genomes of Neanderthals and Denisovans, which is these kind of precursors or at least parallel, you know, ancient hominid species, and you compare their genomes to modern humans, overall, we've known this for a while now, they're very similar. But to understand the impact of the genetic variants that are specific to modern humans, they identified 61 genes that are very common and, and similar in the ancient species, but are basically totally different today. And then they took it one step further. They were, took one of those genes, and I'm going to tell you what that gene is for a second, and they went into an organoid. So an organoid is essentially like a cell culture. So we're not dealing with CRISPR babies here, okay? What we're really doing is in a dish, we're going to see how these new genetic elements alter cellular function. Mm -hmm. But they took this new gene and they knocked it into were essentially modern neurons from a, from a, from a modern human. Mm. And the gene they chose is called NOVA1. Okay. NOVA1 is important because, as I mentioned, Neanderthals had a very different version than almost all of us as modern humans have. Mm -hmm. And NOVA1 codes for what's called a RNA binding protein. Now, when we know the sort of canonical, you have genes that get transcribed into RNA, and then RNA codes for proteins. That's mm -hmm. kind of the yellow brick road of cellular function. But what RNA binding proteins do is they sort of get it ready for that last translational step. So they have the ability to influence a lot of other protein translation down the road because they can talk to they can they can process a lot of different 
RNAs. So the point is they can have a lot of effects in a cell. So it's kind of like an interesting node to impact. Mm. And what they found, to make a long story short, is when they put the ancient Nova 1 into modern human-derived neurons, they grew more slowly. They had a different kind of phenotype. And then the basically the kind of cellular machinery inside those neurons looked quite different. Now, there's a risk of interpreting these data because obviously the modern neuron or the us modern humans have had many co-evolutionary changes in our genomes that have gone along the way with the change in sure. NOVA1. So the fact that you take, you know, it's like taking the old genetic version and put it in with our modern, you know, that's, there's a, there's a huge gap there that perhaps wouldn't have happened. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like there's a lot of yeah, other changes. Like, absolutely. Like, yeah, like you take, if, if you took a, a car part from like a 1967 Volkswagen yeah, and tried and popped to, it in your new Camaro. It might not you know, work the same way. Exactly right, because there's so many other changes in yeah. the modern car. Great analogy, by the way, well, Andre. Um, so there's a risk of overinterpreting or just a, or, or a limitation. We let's not look at these cellular data and say, ah, well, no wonder the Neanderthals yeah, were yeah. less smart. I mean, look at their neurons when we pop in their part of their genome into, but. I think what fascinates me is like here we're not just reading the old ancient DNA, but we now have the genetic tools to start to use and manipulate that ancient DNA to truly understand what the functional consequences mm -hmm. of those ancient DNA. And that's with the CRISPR and other editing technologies. I mean, that's a really exciting possibility mm -hmm. of not just understanding ancient species, but unpacking you know, some of our modern physiology today. I think, I think it could be a cool application too of machine learning where you can create a program that might simulate a lot of the changes that would have occurred over that evolutionary time span. And then maybe you could come up with a number of different scenarios that, you know, the machine can figure out about what that might mean. Yeah. Or, I, you know, I'm, I'm interested in synthetic biology too. And if you think about Craig Venter's work, I don't know what happened to it, but remember 10 years ago, he had this, this research ocean-faring vessel that he oh, went right. around, mm -hmm. you know, delving the depths, <clears throat> looking for just new genetic material, mm -hmm. right? New, interesting genes to start to add to the inventory mm -hmm. of useful functional genetic elements that we can then start to think about in an engineering of biology future. Mm -hmm. We need to know, we need all the, as many parts as we can find. And now I feel like ancient DNA is starting to become another repository for new genetic elements that we may want to reuse and rediscover, you know, yeah. going forward. Like as we're destroying so many species in our current earth, uh, maybe we need to also be able to look back along the temporal dimension back into time for that kind of variability. And that's how they talk about it. They talk about these kind of deep time sequencing. Mm, cool. It's really quite fascinating. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? 
Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Well, there are two studies that caught my eye this week. One of them is about napping, something that I'm <laughs> particularly fond of. But have you ever noticed that like some people are just really good at napping and other people like just can't? And in my life, too, I found that there were certain times in my life when it seemed easier to nap and have a you know refreshing nap versus times where I, like either you don't fall asleep or if you do, you sleep too long. And, you know, I know that there are probably explanations in terms of the changes in my nighttime sleep that might affect, you know, how much I can or should nap. But this was an interesting study because it paired uh, investigators from Mass General with the people who run the UK Biobank. So, you know, and I'm a big fan of the data that comes out of the UK Biobank because, you know, this is just a huge repository of information. Now they have like, you know, in this case, they were looking at like more than 450,000 people. Hmm. So now you can really get, uh, you know, using you know big data analysis tools, you can really get a sense of the population because you're not just talking about, you know, 100 people or even 10,000 twins. You're talking about like 450,000 people. And um, all the participants in the study were asked about their napping habits. And um, the genome-wide association study found 123 regions um, in the human genome that seemed to predict daytime napping. And sort of it's this this idea that I guess they come up with these three mechanisms that seem to predict whether or not a person naps. One is that just some people need more sleep than others, uh, which I think you and I have kind of seen in our lives. I mean, there are definitely some people who can function better on less sleep. You know, I'm sure our friend Matt Walker would take issue with the idea that there are some people who can really function well with very little sleep. I think the data for that is either those people are very, very rare or non-existent. But, you know, some people need eight hours of sleep. Some people might need seven and a half. Some people might need eight and a half. There's some variability there, right? Another factor or mechanism that might lead to napping is that, you know, if you do have disrupted sleep, so even if you you know, spend eight hours or, or whatever in bed, it, it's possible that not all of those hours were good quality sleep. So that that seems to also be an, a marker. And then people that who wake up really early might need to kind of catch up on sleep with a nap uh, in the afternoon. Uh, and so these are all kinds of things that I feel like, well, that seems to be predicted with what common sense would tell you uh, would be the case for daytime napping. But the thing that I found was was interesting about this study was that the authors conclude that there might be a biological drive for napping that goes beyond just, you know, a person's behavioral choices, right? So, um, or, you know, what they had for lunch, for example. Um, and I think this is, a, is an interesting topic right now because there are some countries that traditionally had a napping culture, um, you know, traditionally like the ones, you know, in, in hotter locales where the hottest part of the day uh, usually was a time when people would sort of take a siesta. Uh, and in some of those countries, napping now is is um, not is frowned upon. You know, it's starting to become less popular. 
And then there are places like the U.S. where there's this whole kind of cottage industry of like the coffee nap or like, you know, nap for productivity, this idea that we should be doing this. Um, and so it's kind of interesting to see that there might be a, a genetic variability in uh, people's ability and need for these kinds of naps. And they even tie these genetic mechanisms to a signaling pathway that takes advantage or, or that, that uses orexin, uh, which we know is uh, a neuropeptide involved in in sort of keeping you yeah, awake. wakefulness, sure. Right. Yeah. So, for example, dogs that have low levels of orexin tend to just fall asleep in the middle of... Yeah. Narcoleptic dogs. <laughs> narcoleptic dogs. You can Google uh, or, you know, look on YouTube for a narcoleptic puppy, um, and you'll get a lot of videos of these, of these dogs that fall asleep, often when they're excited. So... You know, they'll they'll be in the middle of eating and then they'll crash into their bowl, which is, is very cute, I must admit. Uh, but anyway, just interesting that like it might be a disruption in this in the pathways that lead to orexin and it's in this role in wakefulness um, that could be the genetic reason for why some people feel a greater drive to nap. Right. I mean, hearing you describe it, it sounds like this study is not necessarily about napping per se, but rather about the sleep requirements or some aspects of sleep physiology that is going to inform us about, you know, you know, why we sleep essentially or how we sleep. And of course, the question that the natural question of any GWAS study or genome wide association study is, do the hits that pop out kind of make mechanistic sense, mm -hmm. right? Are they right. in pathways that we already know that are involved in whatever the phenotypic trait we're looking for or behavior we're looking for, or are they providing some new variant that we're going to have to, or new, new information we need to understand? The fact that there were some things in the orexin signaling pathway really makes sense based on what we know about sleep biology. Yeah. So that article is called Genetic Determinants of Daytime Napping and Effects on Cardiometabolic Health. Now, if you really nerd out, uh -huh. when you read these studies like me, now, this one's tough. How many? How many? Uh, 123. 100. So that's a lot. That's a lot. But yeah. there are other studies where there's far fewer, and you can go, if you read the papers oh, closely, yeah. you can go into your own raw 23andMe SNP data, and sometime you can look to see like whether you have some of these variants. Well, of they your did own. replicate their findings in an additional analysis of the genomes of over 500,000 people from 23andMe. Mm -hmm. um, so. Well, that's what I mean is if you do 23andMe and you actually have access to your raw data and it's searchable and <clears throat> I, I exactly. have been known to do that. Well, and so, yeah, so there's this one gene, KSR2, um, that, the, that the team had previously discovered that plays a role in sleep regulation um, was also one of the genes that popped up in this study. All right, so that's uh, you know one of our of our pet topics is is sleep and high quality sleep and you know I think becoming parents we become more <laughs> interested in our own sleep and how yeah. to get make it better. Um, but the other the other study that caught my eye also hits on uh, one of my favorite topics, which is episodic memory. Uh, this is the work I, you know I, I studied episodic memory for ten years, and I'm still really fascinated by our ability to sort of mentally travel back in time. This is a study that came out of Northwestern, and they used transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS. And essentially what TMS can do is it can stimulate the cells of the brain in a way that is similar to um, how they would stimulate each other. So you can kind of imagine it as a kind of signal booster, if you will. And in, in this particular TMS application, they were able to induce a theta rhythm, uh, which is a kind of 
oscillation uh, that we know is involved in memory, particularly this kind of memory, and particularly in a region uh, called the hippocampus, which is responsible for laying down new long-term memories, especially for events in our lives. So one of the things I thought was really cool uh, about this study was that they, what, so what they did is they had people uh, undergo the TMS and they specifically targeted the hippocampus um, with this particular stimulation approach. And then they had the people watch a bunch of videos of people doing kind of everyday things like taking out the garbage or, you know, doing the laundry. And then they asked, uh, so they had like an encoding phase where you're watching this, these videos and, and they did this while the person was undergoing functional magnetic resonance imaging or fMRI. So they could see the parts of the brain that were activated uh, by during encoding. And, and then they had a retrieval test also in the scanner where people were asked about details of the videos that, that they saw, like what was the person wearing or, you know, what are some of the details of the event that happened? And so interestingly, the, the, this, thing, this is a cool study because it has both a behavioral component. So the TMS actually enhanced retrieval of details uh, from the videos. And secondly, they have a mechanism of which, what, what they're seeing um, happening in the brain, which is something called cortical reinstatement. So just to unpack that a little bit, the hippocampus is this structure deep within the brain. And the idea is that it kind of creates a little index of parts of the brain that are active when you're experiencing something and how they're related. So, you know, let's say we're going to a birthday party, um, the hippocampus will take note of like where you are. So the visual stimuli, maybe the sounds, maybe the smells, and it'll create this little memory trace where it ties all these different elements together. And then when you're remembering what that day was like, it will essentially reinstate the parts of the cortex that were activated when you first experienced it. So the parts of your occipital cortex where your, you know, vision is represented, the parts of your auditory cortex where, you know, you were processing the sound, etc. And so what they saw in this study is that this kind of TMS actually seemed to influence this reinstatement, uh, particularly in the occipital cortex. So they could see like an enhanced reinstatement um, after TMS. TMS seems like magic to me <laughs> because it is such a crude way of quote unquote stimulating the brain. It's just, it's so curious to me, you know, that, that, and we've seen this across numerous domains where TMS does influence and seemingly enhance performance in a number of tasks. I find it to be truly extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, I think that we're getting better and better at understanding, you know, exactly what the stimulation is doing. And especially if you compare it with um, fMRI, you can get a sense of how activity is being shaped by the TMS stimulation. But you're right that there is still somewhat controversial in terms of, you know, what exactly uh, does it do? But I found it pretty compelling. No, it like is. I mean, if you have proper controls, proper controls, yeah, then, you know, you have to, yeah hippocampally, you know, mediated, targeted uh, TMS, improved memory accuracy, you've got the behavioral enhancement, and enhanced the cortical reinstatement of this naturalistic episodic memory. Mm -hmm. um, and it all ties into what we already know that are, or, you know, we think we know are the mechanisms of this kind of memory retrieval. And this is, so I thought this study was just particularly well done in terms of building on the previous work that, you know, we see across species, across different, you know, avenues. I mean, we see it in, patients with, uh, you know, electrodes implanted, we see it in fMRI, we see it across like a whole bunch of different measures. 
Um, and so this is just a in cool way to think yeah. that. And like maybe we can get to a state at some point where you can imagine this would be a commercially viable product where you can wear a headset that will help you remember. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Like mm -hmm. let's say you're going to someday uh, a conference again and you want to remember who you were meeting and when and what people were saying like maybe if you're wearing or you're kind of you know getting doing a little bit of stimulation before you go into a networking session you might actually be able to remember people's names and faces better yeah i guess the question of does tms effectively activate hippocampal circuits given just its placement you know in the brain it seems to be that it does versus say you know smatter sensory cortex, motor cortex, things that are kind of directly below the skull. Um, but yes, I mean, I know that that's the big criticism, but it sounds like they've solved some of those technical issues. I haven't read the accompanying methods paper um, that describes, you know, how, how they did that part. Uh, but it's, it seemed, yeah. it seemed more no, advanced I'm, than it has I'm in the past. I'm interested. I'm interested. I ask probing questions because I'm interested. You and know. also I should say, I just want to give a shout out. The, the lead author is Melissa Hebsher. Um, the senior author is Joel Voss, um, and the the uh, paper was published in Current Biology. So, but yeah, I mean, I, I I hear you. I you know, normally when I see TMS, I'm a little skeptical, and this one just read so methodologically right tightly Solid. to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, I yeah. I, I want to learn more about about this particular um, method because it seems like you know they. They have a very specific protocol, you know, in their TMS procedure. They talk about, you know, having a particular a, a theta burst stimulation protocol that apparently has been shown to target the hippocampus. So, yeah, you could imagine a device where you can somehow download like a new stimulation <laughs> procedure. Yeah. Like, actually, today, you know, what? I really need theta. But yesterday I was alpha. Oh, man. man. Eventually... I, yesterday was an alpha. <laughs> So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Cheng, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Rihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer Awald, Charles Blyle, and Dale Lavaster. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm one of your hosts, Indre Viscontis. And I'm Adam Bristol. See you next week. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.